Take your copy of God's Word with me this morning and turn in it to 1 Chronicles 16. 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 through 36. We're taking a uh, short break for a few weeks from our series, our study in Hebrews. We've kind of come to a a natural uh, stopping point in the book of Hebrews before the author of Hebrews uh, goes on to describe in greater length the priestly ministry of Jesus. And even as we have started this past Wednesday, 40 days of prayer together as a church, I thought that it would be fitting for us to spend some time in God's word on Sunday mornings um, around the things that we are praying for uh, in our church. Uh, those of you who uh, received or downloaded, printed off maybe one of the uh, 40 days of prayer prayer guides know that each day we're praying for a different thing in the life of the church, specifically one of the praying around one of the different functions of the church that we see in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, things like in no particular order, worship, evangelism, discipleship, ministry, fellowship. And then we're spending a day uh, on Saturdays praying for rest and that God would help us to rest in his presence, his provision, his care. And on Sundays, we are praying that God would reveal his glory. Seeing God's glory, experiencing his glory in the church, glorifying God as the church can sometimes be a sort of um, a far off abstract concept, hard to get our, our minds around. What does it mean to glorify God? And so I wanted to take uh, these next few weeks and, and, and preach from God's word, illustrate from God's word how we see God's glory related to those uh, five functions of the church and even to rest, how God's glory impacts wor- uh, worship and uh, evangelism, ministry, discipleship, fellowship, and, and even in our rest. And so today we're beginning a series that I've called God's Glory in the Church, and today's uh, sermon is on God's glory and our worship. God's glory and our worship. And so we're going to see that illustrated for us in 1 Chronicles 16. But before, and, and, and the idea that we are uh, shooting for today, the main idea that I want for us to grab hold of today is this, that God is glorified in the church as they worship him, as, as we worship him, with all that we are. God is glorified in the church as we worship him with all that we are. And we're going to flesh that out here in just a little bit, mo- uh, in just a moment. I would hope that as we explore this concept today and see it illustrated for us in Scripture, that we would come to have a clearer understanding of what we mean when we talk about God's glory, and that we would, in result, give Him praise, give Him worship for all of His countless perfections. Now, I hope that you'll indulge me in a brief uh, mental exercise um, as I try to do my best to uh, describe or define what we mean by glory and glorifying God. I don't mean simply that when when we speak about glorifying God, I don't mean simply that we sing songs of praise to him, right? That glorifying God is not as simple as that. It's not as plain or as easy as that because God's glory is far more complex than that. So let's think about glory from human terms, if we can, to see how it is that God is most glorious and most worthy of glory and most worthy of our praise. Let's start with the uh, lowest uh, level of, uh, of things that are existing in our universe. Let's look at the inanimate world. And let's start with maybe the most glorious thing in the inanimate world, a diamond, all right? Now that I have all the ladies' attention. Well, uh, I'm just kidding. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. I guess not in this room. That's okay. Diamonds are beautiful. Diamonds have a particular kind of glory, not just by the way that they shine and reflect, re- reflect and refract light uh, uh, through the stone as, as lights are shined on them, but diamonds have other kind of beauty as well. It's not just in how pretty and sparkly they are. 
They're beautiful in the way that they're cut. They're beautiful in the way that the, the symmetry of the shape. You've got round cuts and square cuts and princess cuts and uh, uh, teardrop cuts and emerald cuts. And pro- half of those are probably all the same sort of cut. And I'm just calling them different things. But diamonds are beautiful things. And, and diamonds have a particular kind of inherent beauty. But you take a diamond and you put it in a dark room and its beauty is obscured, isn't it? You put it in a room with no light whatsoever. And even if you can hold it in your hand, its, it's beauty is obscured by the fact that there's no light shining on it. A diamond has to have something acting upon it for it to show its glory, its beauty. Let's take a step up the rung of the ladder of uh, existence now and move from the inanimate world to the animate world. Consider the glory of a particular kind of animal. Uh, my mind uh, always immediately goes to a tiger. I don't know what that says about me or my personality, but that's what I think. Tigers are a glorious kind of animal. You look at a picture of a tiger, you see the stripes, you see the fangs, you see their claws, just their, the, the, the strength in, in, uh, in their body and the, the muscles that they have. And that is a glorious kind of, there's a particular kind of beauty about that thing, about that animal. But then you turn on National Geographic and you see video of a tiger hunting an antelope in, um, uh, you know, in the middle of the, the African Sahara or maybe uh, hunting a, um, some sort of animal in, in, the, Indi- in the, the jungles of India. And you see that pattern power, those, those uh, uh, fangs and, and, and their uh, claws on display, the, the speed with which it moves and how quickly it takes down another animal of great size, like an, an antelope. And there's a particular kind of glory that is displayed in this animal acting upon its instincts. But it gets more complex still, as you see maybe a tigress, as she's not hunting an antelope, but caring for her cubs, nurturing them, feeding them, teaching them how to live in the world. There's, a, there's another kind of beauty, there's another kind of glory that's on display there. Let's take a step up and another rung of that ladder of existence and consider not animals, but humanity, who, as we know, as scripture tells us, are made in the image of God. But we are far more complex even than glorious great animals like uh, tigers or blue whales or whatever the case may be. Because we have not been limited by our lack of self-unawareness, right? Humans being self-aware can display beauty, can display a certain kind of glory, uh, not just in what we look like and not just in the things we do instinctually, but even in the things that we do that are not instinctual, like creating things, writing songs, playing music, acting in films, writing books, plays, great novels of history, the glory of humanity is far greater even than the glory of, uh, of the animal kingdom or of the inanimate world, even beautiful things like diamonds because we are able to create things that previously were not there. There's a beauty in that. There's a, there's, there's a, a captivating something, a compelling something about that. And so as we take the last step of this ladder of Uh, existence, consider not human beings, but God, who is not limited, who is not finite, who is not bound by space and time, but God who created space and time. We look at him to see his glory, his beauty on display, his love, his justice, his mercy, his compassion, his power, his knowledge, all that is God. We could go on and on and on all day long. All that is God, he is so infinitely, he's not limited, and perfectly. None of it is is tinged by evil. None of it is uh, uh, weighed down with uh, weakness. 
right? But all that God is, he is so in an unlimited way. He is unlimited in the infinite beauty of all of his perfections. And because of that, he is glorious. The Hebrew word that the Old Testament uses for glory is the Hebrew word kabod. And kabod means, or has a sense of meaning of heaviness, weight, honor. It's translated into English as glory, but it's, but it's more than just something being brilliant. It is uh, something being brilliant in a way that, that bears with it the weight of significance, right? In the Greek New Testament, the word used for glory is the Greek word doxa, which means splendor or brightness, praise, honor, glory. So when we speak of the glory of God, we're speaking about all of his infinite perfections in all of their infinite beauty in a way that weighs on us with significance, but also brightens our eyes, is splendorous, is, is, is majestic. It is worthy of looking upon. It is delightful to set our eyes on. My favorite theologian, Jonathan Edwards, has a very long definition of, uh, and I think it's beautiful, of what God's glory is and what it looks like. But for the sake of our time today, I'll read some shorter ones. Though if you want that longer definition, I'm happy to send you that paragraph, which I think is the greatest paragraph written in human history, but that's just me. Pastor John Piper says, the glory of God is, this is how he defines the glory of God, is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold, his many perfections. The infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. I like the way one missiologist defines God's glory. He says that God's glory is God's fame and splendor that is associated with, that comes along with his manifest presence, right? So God's glory is not a thing that is far away from us. God is not glorious in the sense that, and he is not glorified as he is far away, as he is, he is high in the heavens. We are down here and we just constantly give him obeisance and, and, and worship and praise him and hope that he doesn't throw lightning down from heaven upon us, right? That is not how the, scripture displays God's glory. Scripture displays God's and describes God's glory as his fame and his splendor associated with his presence with his people. God is glorious, yes, and he wants us to know his glory and to glorify him, yes, but he also wants us to find our greatest delight, our greatest pleasure, our greatest fulfillment in life in knowing him who is glorious. When we think about God's glory, we're immediately, I think, then moved to look at the first function of the church, which is worship. God's glory and worship go hand in hand. Because he is glorious, we worship him. So how do we define worship? Worship defined is just the, the ascribing of worth to a person or an object. Saying to a person or an object, that is worthy of praise. It's worthy of compliment. It's worthy of giving attention to. One Bible dictionary says that worship in the biblical sense is the pro public and private praise, adoration, and reverence of God. It is a celebration of God's worthiness by which honor is given to his name. Why? Because he's glorious because of his fame and his splendor, his majesty, his beauty that is associated with his manifest presence among his people. How is God most manifestly present among his people today? In the Holy Spirit that lives in us by faith in Jesus, right? This all-glorious God has made his home in your heart, dear Christian, Amen. even today. And that is worthy, that is something that is worthy of worship, worthy of praise. God is glorified in the church when they worship him with all that they are. 
Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 8 through 36, as we see this illustrated, this whole life worship illustrated to, uh, and given to a glorious God. The context of 1 Chronicles 16 is this. David is king of uh, Israel, and he has recently brought the ark of God, that wooden box overlaid with gold that held the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff and, uh, and a few other things. He has rescued it from the Philistines, and he is bringing it back into Jerusalem to place it into a tent that was made for this specific purpose. And upon doing so, David leads the people of Israel in worship to God. Hear his song of thanks. First Chronicles 16, beginning of verse 8. David says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Oh, offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, in the land, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth, David says, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory his fame and splendor associated with his manifest presence. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and all God's people said, Amen. God is glorified in the church when they worship him with all that they are, when they worship him with all of their first, all of their head, with all that we know about God. True worship begins with what we know to be true about God. Truth about God, the things that are true about him, are those things that have been revealed to us by God. There's no way for us to know God truly unless he speaks to us. And God speaks to us two different ways. On the one hand, he speaks to us in creation. This is what theologians call general revelation, that we can look out at the world that God has created, look into the universe, and we can see by, by what we see with our eyes that there is a God who has power to create and that he is infinitely powerful. Paul points this out for us in Romans chapter one. 
But really, on looking on the world, those are all the things, that's the most specific that we can get about our knowledge of God, that he exists and that he is infinitely powerful. And for us to know more about God, he has to speak more clearly to us. He has to speak more specifically to us. And he does speak to us in a special way, in a specific way here in scripture. Theologians call this special revelation, right? Whereas God speaking to us through divinely inspired authors about all that he is and how he acts and, and, and works in human history, how he saves people to himself. True worship begins with what we know to be true about God and what we know to be most true and clearly true about God, he has spoken to us by his word. Listen to what David says and, and how he reminds the people about what is true about who God is in, in this song in First Chronicles. In verse 14, he says, he is the Lord. That is, he is Yahweh, using God's personal name that he reveals to Moses at the, burning, at the burning bush. He is the Lord who judges the sins of the earth. God is the one who has made a covenant of love and provision with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see in verses 15 through 18. These are things God has done. When the people of Israel were few in number, when they were oppressed by the Egyptians and others from around the earth, when they were sojourners in the land, God was the one who rescued them. God was the one who protected them. God was the one who spoke to them his law that they might walk in justice and righteousness before him. Verses 25 and 26 tell us that God is great and singular and that there is no other God beside him and no God of our imagination who can realistically compete with him. Verse 27 tells us that he is splendorous. He is majestic. God is beautiful to look upon. He is strong and he is the giver of all joy. He's the one who gives salvation to his people who call upon him and draw near to him in faith. Verse 35 says, see all the things that David says are true about God. These are certainly not all, but they're some of the many things that we can say are true about God, are true about him from his word. We, we could spend the entire day today, flipping through the pages of scripture to see all the things that are true and that we can know for certain about God and about who he is. True worship begins, as we worship God with what we know, it begins with the head. Worship must begin with what we know to be true about God. Our songs, the songs that we sing in worship should lead us to sing what is true about God and should lead us to sing thoughtfully about God. And I'm so grateful for Pastor Danny's leadership there that we sing songs that are true about God. Not just words that sound good, but words that are true, words that come from scripture that we remind ourselves even as we sing of who God is, what his character is like. Further, our worship, even in preaching and hearing the word of God preached, should be grounded, should be founded upon what is true from God's word. We must always ask, you should always ask, even as you hear me preaching week to week, is the preacher right? You should be asking yourself that question. Is the preacher right? Is he speaking truthfully and clearly and consistently only what scripture has clearly, truthfully, and consistently said about God in heaven? But worship that is only intellectual, worship that only comes from the head, right? Worship that is only based upon what we know to be true about God is ultimately an incomplete sort of worship. That's the kind of worship that is bound to grow boring to some who are maybe not particularly intellectual, don't, don't like thinking a whole lot. That's not a knock on anybody, right? But, but worship or even churches that are all geared towards the mind are going to be boring to those 
who are not in that world. But for those who are in that world, worship that is only cognitive, only intellectual, will lead them to become elitists. Like, you can't worship well with me because you don't know all the things that I know about God, you see? True worship of God must, it does, begin with the head, with what we know to be true of God. Our worship must be based on what we know to be true of God. So, dear friend, is your worship built upon what is true about God from his word? How well are you engaging your mind in worship with the church? Are you engaging your mind when you worship? Do you find yourself bored in worship when it engages your mind, when it's sometimes intellectual on mornings like this? Are you, like me, tempted to over-intellectualize your worship and to make worship all about what you know to be true and not focus on any other part of life? Well, do this this week, I encourage you, knowing that God is glorified when the church worships him with all that they are, begin by worshiping God with your mind. This week, create a short list from scripture, I'm encouraging you, of all the things that are true and glorious, true and beautiful, true and worthy of thinking upon about God. Engage your mind in thinking about God this week. God is glorified as we worship him with all that we are, head and also heart, right? God is, is glorified when we worship him out of relationship and love for him. So true worship does not stop at intellectualism. God is not God of the mind only. He's God of the heart as well. Exodus 20 verse five tells us that God is jealous for our affections. He longs for your love. He is the most lovely and most deserving of your love in all the universe. And he knows it and he wants it. He knows that you'll be most delighted uh, when, when in life when you are most delighted in him. And so he wants your love. God is not just a dispenser of facts about himself, but he's also the supreme lover of humanity. Listen to how he loves you, dear friend. Romans chapter five, verses six through eight, Paul says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, unlovely, unlovable, unloving toward him, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter two, verses four and five, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God is not just a dispenser of facts. He's not just a dispenser of knowledge about himself. He is the supreme lover of every man, woman, and child that has been made in his image. True worship of God comes from a heart then that has been made, that, that has been changed by real relationship with God. It starts with what we know to be true about God, but it continues with, what, with, how, with how God has changed us at the level of our heart. Worship that glorifies God flows out of a soul that has been totally overwhelmed by the beauty of God. A life that finds its greatest delight and joy in the person of God and in real communion, real relationship with him. Hear the heart of worship in David's song in 1 Chronicles 16 verses 8 and 10. He says, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. He says in verses 31 through 34, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let, let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. 
Let the sea roar and all that fills it and the field exult and everything in it. See how David is calling the hearts of the people to delight in God, to rejoice. Not, not just in who he is, right? but also in the relationship that they have with him. Yeah. And so true worship must not be a, a matter of the head only, but also a matter of the heart. We should not check our emotions at the door when we come to corporate worship on Sunday morning. There is a place for emotion in worship. God has made us with emotions. And sometimes we use them sinfully. Often we use them sinfully. But God intends for our emotions to be used to glorify him as he delights our soul in relationship with him. We must not check our emotions at the door, but worship that is only a matter of the heart, worship that is only a matter of emotion can be dangerous. In the same way that worship that is only of the mind, only intellectual can be dangerous. Because worship that comes only from the heart, worship that is only emotionally engaged, will often lead us to chase after emotional experiences, calling those things worship. Can lead us to, to, to the fault of saying, well, I didn't feel particularly stirred when we sang songs or when the word was preached today. Uh, the pastor didn't make me cry, so I guess I must not have worshiped. Heart-only worship oftentimes quits when the heart doesn't feel like worshiping. If your worship was dependent upon only how you felt about God on a particular day, how consistently would you worship? There are lots of days, even Sundays. I wake up in the morning and my innermost thought is, I really don't feel like it. So worship must engage the emotions but not only the emotions. So Christian, dear friend, do you find your heart warmed when you worship? Are your emotions engaged when you sing songs of praise to God that are true about him? When you engage him in his word? When you think on the beauty of God's love and salvation, his sovereignty, his care, his justice, are you moved to express your praise to him? If not, pray that God would ignite, ignite your affections for him that your worship would not be a, merely a mental pursuit, but it would also be a pursuit of the heart, that you would find your delight in him. Friend, do you feel that you have not worshiped rightly unless you have had an emotional experience? Know this, that emotion alone is often deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9, the Lord says, our hearts are sick and desperately wicked. So then pray that God would help you to temper your passions for worship with the truth of his word. Do this this week to engage your heart in worship. Make a list of all the things that you love about the Father. You already start by making a list of all the things that are true about God. Now make a list of all the things that you love about God the Father. Make a list of all the things that excite you about Christ, that get your blood pumping when you think about the realities of the gospel. List all the things that delight you about the truth of the Holy Spirit who lives in your heart by faith in him. Engage your heart in worship this week by reflecting on all that delights your soul about God. God is most glorified in his church when they worship him with all that they are, head, heart, and, you guessed it, hands. When we worship God, as we live for his purposes. True worship that delights in God's glory and seeks to include others in the supreme delight of knowing, loving, glorifying God, being known by him, being loved by him, must not stop at the head and heart. It must get to what we do. It must get to our hands. True worship acts. True worship does stuff. 
It does stuff like singing as David invites the congregation that he is leading. Sing to the Lord, verse 23, 23, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Do something about it, David says. Sing to the Lord and tell others about what he has done. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. Verses 28 through 30, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering, come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Do something with your worship, David says. And so when we come to observe the glory of God in all of his manifold perfections, his fame and splendor associated with his manifest presence in our lives, as we come to observe the glory of God as he reveals himself to us, and as we experience his glory in relationship with him through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us by faith in Jesus, his glory is perceived in us, uh, experienced by us, it delights our soul and moves us to action. It can't, but not. So that action, the way that worship acts in your life, the way that worship hits your hands may look like singing as David commands. It might look like declaring his salvation among the nations to people who don't yet know the Lord. It can look like calling all the earth and every person on it to worship God for his glorious goodness and his holiness. Whatever it is, this much is true. All of the Christian life is to be lived in worship. Worship is not just a Sunday morning thing that we do for 45 minutes or an hour. It is to be lived in the active pursuit of perceiving and experiencing God's glory day by day, moment by moment, and then privately and publicly declaring his praise and pursuing his fame and splendor as we live in his presence and invite others to share with us God's all-consuming passion for his glory in the earth. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all things, what? To the glory of God. Do all things for the fame and splendor of God associated with his manifest presence in your life. So Christian, are you this morning lacking a passion for God's glory that inspires action? Does all of this seem far off to you? Does all of this seem far away to you? I urge you by what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, To do this, to strive to do all that you do in life, to display the fame and splendor of God, even as you walk in his presence. Which means you've got to think about all that you do and is this displaying the beauty of God? Is the way that I care for my children, is the way that I love my wife, is the way that I work at my job, is the way that I talk with my neighbors, is all that displaying the beauty and splendor and majesty of God in my life? Strive to do this. And if you struggle to do it, it may be because you have too small a view of God's glory. So I encourage you, I dare you to pray as Moses prayed in Exodus 34. Lord, show me your glory. Lord, show me your glory. Moses wanted to see the splendor of God as he was manifestly present before him. He longed to see it. And there is something admirable in that longing that all of us should delight to see and want to see. Pray, Lord, show me your glory. And I dare you to see if God does not delight to speedily answer that prayer when you really pray it in faith. 
Friends, I understand that there may be some in this room gathering this size who are outside of a glorious relationship with their creator, with God. And all of this this morning about worshiping God, head, heart, and hands, what we know about him, how we've experienced him, the way we live in our life, may sound intriguing, might sound interesting, but to you who would not call yourself a Christian, you don't know how this applies to your life. Know this morning that this kind of relationship with God that he invites us into and longs to delight our souls with is impossible apart from knowing Jesus, his son, who was God born into humanity and who lived to make the father known to us in the most tangible of ways. If you have seen me, Jesus says, you have seen the father. And with all the love of the Father for humanity, with all the love for the Father and his beautiful plan to rescue us from sin for himself, Jesus, the Son of God, dies our death for sin and is raised gloriously from the dead. And he did this for you, friend, so that you might know God, so that you might love God in return for his love to you and so that you might live in the delightful, joyous, life-giving, purpose-filled worship of him forever. My brothers and sisters at First Baptist West Albuquerque, we were made for this, to glorify God. We were made for this. Our mission statement says so. First Baptist West Albuquerque exists to glorify God. As we make disciples of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, we were made for worship. We were made for giving him glory, head, heart, and hands in all of our life of worship. So then, brothers and sisters, my partners in the gospel, let us pray that God would so reveal his glory to us that we would want nothing less than more of him for ourselves and more of the knowledge of him in the world. God is glorified when his church worship him with all that they are, head, heart, hands. So I close with this prayer from the Puritans who have such a way of putting into words great things like what we have explored in God's word today that lead our hearts to worship. Pray with me this. Glorious God, it is the flame of my life to worship thee the crown and glory of my soul to adore thee, heavenly pleasure to approach thee. Give me power by thy spirit to help me worship now that I may forget the world. Be brought into the fullness of life. Be refreshed, comforted, blessed. Give me knowledge of thy goodness that I might not be overawed by thy greatness. Give me Jesus, son of man, son of God, that I might not be terrified, but be drawn near with filial love, with holy boldness, he is my mediator, brother, interpreter, branch, daysman, lamb. Him I glorify. In him I am set on high. Crowns to give thee I have none. But what thou hast given I return, content to feel that everything is mine when it is thine, and the more fully mine when I have yielded it to thee. Let me live wholly to my Savior, free from distractions from carking care, from hindrances to the pursuit of the narrow way. I am pardoned through the blood of Jesus. Give me a new sense of it. Continue to pardon me by it. May I come every day to the fountain and every day be washed anew that I may worship thee always in spirit and truth. For Jesus' sake, amen.